The Weekend Variety Wireless. Real soon, shipwreck tales teller John McChrystal will tell us what's happened to the endeavour. Uh, some two groups of archaeologists reckon they found the thing far out. How could it become just so ignored and undervalued, being such an iconic ship? That story with John McChrystal shortly. No background music at this introduction, because you don't have to, and also because I want to play a piece of music. Marty Balin, the founder. He was one of the original founders, and you could argue the founder, of a wonderful band. They started out good anyway. Jefferson Airplane. I'm not so sure about the Starship, but Grace Slick's still there. Um, Jefferson Airplane were marvellous. And Marty Balin um, wrote some beautiful songs. They had some great songwriting talent in there. Kantner et al. Kantner died not that long ago. But Marty Balin uh, and Paul Kantner wrote this beautiful thing. Pardon me, I forget which album it's off, but it's called Today. So a salute to Marty Balin. Died today at the age of 76. Jefferson Airplane. Today. Today, I know what I want to do, but I don't know what for. To be living for you is all I want to do. To be loving you, it'll all Just tuned in, played because Marty Balin of Jefferson Airplane, that band, died today, age 76. Where is the Endeavour, Captain Cook's ship, next? Weekend Variety Wireless. Some remarkable news that the 
Endeavour, the ship Endeavour, the most famous ship uh, outside of legendary canoes, I suppose, waka in New Zealand. Um, the uh, Captain Cook's first to New Zealand, a remarkably tiny little thing, but what a story it could tell. What happened to the thing? Apparently, it has been discovered. It's resting place on the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Maritime historian John McChrystal and host of the remarkable uh, Shipwreck Tales uh, can fill us in a little bit about this ship, its rediscovery, and what happened to it after it made that amazing voyage uh, in which part, in, in part of which was coming to New Zealand. John McChrystal, good day. G'day, Graham. How are you? Wonderful. Just the first thing about this, uh, the endeavour. Um, whenever I've seen uh, life scale um, depiction of it, it's just ridiculously small. If I was Captain Cook's boss and he said, uh, "I'm going to go use this ship," I'd just say, "You're going to do what in that?" It's ridiculously small, isn't it? Yeah, she was pretty pretty small, all right. She um, she was a collier originally, so she was designed for um, humping coal up and down the the British coast. Uh, I've seen a, a replica. I was lucky enough to see a replica twenty five years ago. It must be um, when that sailed New Zealand waters to commemorate the hundred and twenty fifth anniversary of her uh, the original visit here. Mm. And when she was alongside in Auckland, that is what forcibly struck you, how tiny the thing was to go all around the world when no one really knew what, or no European really knew what was um, in a lot of the water that Cook sailed. Mm. Was there a good reason behind Cook's decision to say, yeah, that'll do me? Yeah, he was a Whitby man, and this was a Whitby ship, so he was very familiar with the type of vessel, and he knew they could weather just about any storm. Uh, she drew very little water. In other words, she didn't hang down beneath the surface of the water very far, and that uh, could potentially be very useful when you were visiting unknown shores in case you happened to run aground. Uh, she was very, very sturdy and not fast, but uh, she could carry everyone in relative comfort because she was also very stable. This is a pretty famous vessel. Uh, we, of course, know of it. It's in our DNA, Captain Cook and the, and the Endeavour, uh, for good or bad. And But internationally, is she well known as an iconic vessel? Well, needless to say, the Australians take a fair interest in her because, yeah, uh, yeah she she is as significant to them as she is to us in many ways. Um, they have various bits and pieces of her there. I mean, we've got a cannon or so. Um, they've got a few cannon which were uh, tossed overboard on the Great Barrier Reef when the Endeavour was stacked up there for a little while. Uh, and in order to lighten her and get her off, they um, they threw some of their hardware over. Um, so the Australians are, are pretty keen on her. The British don't really care. Uh, she was just another ship back mm. in them empire days. Uh, and the Americans, who seem to have custody of her wreck, don't really care that much either, except that a bunch of um, enterprising maritime archaeologists uh, have decided that if they can positively, positively identify the wreck uh, and maybe even raise some of it or, or uh, extract a few artefacts, they'll be able to base a little bit of tourism around it. Oh, I see. Okay, now, how 
Where is this ship, and how do we know that it's more than likely the Endeavour after all these years? Yeah, back in the 90s, there was a bit of attention uh, directed towards the the maritime history underwater around Rhode Island, uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Um, There were about 2,000 wrecks of various sorts there, so um, you would think needle in a haystack. Uh, but during the War of Independence, uh, the Endeavour was there. Uh, she was known as the Lord Sandwich Number 2, or Lord Sandwich 2, um, and she was acting as a troop ship in order to get there. And then she was knocking about Rhode Island when the French went to attack the British garrison there. Uh, the British were occupying Rhode Island at the time. In order to prevent the French fleet sailing in, um, 13 ships were, were scuttled. They were deliberately sunk. Uh, in the, the narrow channels in order to make it a bit tricky uh, for French warships to enter. Um, she was known... A document has come to light uh, from the uh, the um, Naval Museum in Greenwich, which seems to positively identify the Endeavour or the Lord Sandwich too as one of those 13 ships. And it's been further narrowed down, they think, to uh, a group of five that are north of a uh, a feature of Newport called Goat Island. Uh, they've been busy sort of surveying them and trying to work out uh, roughly what size they are because the Endeavour was substantially larger than any of the other vessels, any of the other 13 vessels that was coupled. Uh-huh. So if they can find the biggest one, they've found her. Wow. Uh, so obviously at the time, uh, War of Independence, the Americans and the British had more serious things to worry about, uh, no qualms about scuttling a thing in wartime that may have had huge significance, um, or at least we know, a uh, great history. They Did they know of the history of the ship at that time or just didn't give a jot it was the Lord Sandwich? At the point where she was sunk, they probably didn't know. Uh, She was just the Lord Sandwich. She was just a troop ship. Um, Interestingly, when the Lord Sandwich arrived in America carrying troops, um, she formed up with a fleet of other vessels, and one of those was the Resolution, which was another of Cook's former ships. Um, So, no, there was no sentimentality at all, especially, it seems, not around the Endeavour. When she arrived back in... uh, in England in 1771, she was immediately uh, refitted and used as a, a naval transport uh, and went to and, to and fro from England to the Falkland Islands, just carrying supplies to the British garrison there. Wow. Uh, she spent a little bit of time after she was decommissioned in 1774 as a commercial vessel uh, belonging to a, a fellow a, a company called Mathers. Um, they instantly owned the southern... Southern whale fishery, Southern Ocean whale fishery, which kicked around in our waters. Um, she made one commercial voyage in their ownership to Archangel in the north of Russia. Uh, and then when the War of Independence broke out, their enterpri- her enterprising owners offered her three times to the Navy as a troop ship. Uh, she was rejected twice. Um, the name was changed a couple of times just to try to fool them into thinking it was a different ship being submitted. <laughs> Um, and finally, as the Lord Sandwich too, she was accepted uh, in 1775. Uh, she sailed over to uh, Rhode Island, and as far as I know, it was pretty much unknown what the distinguished history of this vessel was. She was just a, another hunk of wood. 
Yeah, it is kind of amazing, amazing in retrospect, but there will be a lot of interest in this. What is going to happen from now? If they find the biggest one of this bunch, it must be the Endeavour, if you find the biggest one, as you explained. What's going to happen now? Well, that's a really interesting question, because at the moment, uh, Newport seems to be a pretty muddy sort of place, and these vessels are all... uh, They're debris fields, really. They're wooden ships that have been underwater for the best part of 200 years plus. So there's not a great deal left of them. Um, So the best you can hope for is that you'll find stray bits and pieces and probably the more durable bits, the the iron bits. Um, The trouble is, as soon as you start raising those things, they require pretty intensive and immediate uh, conservation efforts. And the crowd who are most... Uh, closely involved in the salvage of these vessels or the scanning at this stage and then hopefully the salvage uh, is a fairly amateur outfit called REMAP, which is Rhode Island's Maritime Archaeological Project. Um, They've done a really good job of mapping. They've just used amateur divers for the most part to map these debris fields. Um, But they're not equipped to uh, perform any conservation work on anything they might in the future raise. So while they've got sort of the inside running and they've got the rights to actually perform salvage on these things, um, they're not really equipped to deal with what they, they haul up. They hope to be, but um, that's a bit of a pipe dream, needless to say, because there's going to be a lot of money involved. Um, just a short distance away from where they're based, there's the University of Rhode Island, and that's one of the better-equipped maritime archaeological facilities in the world, and they have all the bells and whistles required to conserve anything that might be raised from the seabed of Newport. Uh, Travellers, they're on the outer and don't have any right to go and meddle with the um, the wrecks on the seafloor. So supposing they do identify this vessel, there's that sort of Mexican standoff huh. to be resolved between these two organisations involved uh, in searching for her. So... It's a bit like the little guy wants to hang on to the discovery and whatever rights they can, but the big guy with all the gear um, is better equipped but won't be let in if uh, this is a political war. That's the way it appears from here. Uh, the, the University of Rhode Island, and in particular a um, New Zealand-born uh, maritime archaeologist who works there uh, by the name of... Um, uh, Bridget Buxton, uh, is very keen for the New Zealand government to show an interest in this because if that were to happen, it might encourage her institution to provide the necessary funding and just impetus to solve this um, the standoff with REMAP. Um, it looks as though it will remain a standoff. The Australians have, have uh, for a little while now, two or three years now, have expressed an interest, but that hasn't caused anything to budge. So it's hard to know where it's going to go. But the exciting thing that is in prospect is that they do seem to be very close to at least uh, pinpointing which of these five wrecks is uh, the Lord Sandwich and therefore the Endeavour. What can be done? Let's say the best um, reclamation technologies. We've we've seen what happened to the Mary Rose, uh, although that pretty much drained Portsmouth in the south of England from many of its resources. It was yeah. a, a no mean feat. What can be done? 
Well, it depends what's there, Graham. It's um, it's unlikely there's going to be anything more than her, her iron fittings, I would think. Uh, there may be sections of timber that have been preserved by the mud, because mud can do that. Uh, but as soon as they're raised, because you've seen the intensive effort that's needed just to keep the remains of the Mary Rose from crumbling into dust. Yeah, uh, yeah there's just so much uh, effort and technology required to to preserve wooden artefacts that, yeah, it would need to be a dedicated facility and it would need to, to have a lot of resourcing thrown at it. So beyond knowing where the endeavour rests, it, it's doubtful we're going to see much of her um, that's going to, to, yeah, that's really going to impress anyone when they're, they're surveying it, I think. In all reality, if we, if they uh, could find something from the wreck, bring it up, ID it, um, can it be ID'd? Or is it a touch of the grandfather's axe? Is the endeavour really the, <laughs> the same stuff that came to New Zealand? What, what, how would you ID it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I presume she wouldn't even have carried something like a ship's bell uh, that would um, record her to have been the Endeavour because, of course, she was sailing as the Lord Sandwich. So, yeah, I don't think there would be anything with the name Endeavour written on it. Uh, There may well be distinctive fittings uh, Mm -hmm. from the vessel or from even that class of vessel that that could be raised, but they're not going to be much to look at, to tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, big story behind be... the big, big story behind anything that would have been a permanent fixture, though. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's the thing that an object, as long as it's got that kind of provenance, can have its own yeah, its own mystique, really. And yeah, something something like a cannon, if she were carrying one uh, as the Lord Sandwich, would be good. Uh, rudder pintles, just general marine hardware, really, is what you're you're likely to be looking at, but. It will be famous marine hardware should they raise it. So, was it previously known, kinda, sorta, where the Endeavour Lord Sandwich went down, and this has only been pinpointed now? There were two stories, really, um, mostly because some enterprising fellow in London used to run tours of a hulk uh, that was sort of settling into the muddy bank of the Thames. And uh, he claimed that that was the endeavour, and he ran guided tours. So, huh? um, that was uh, that was regarded as quite plausible. The British consul in, in America actually denied that the Lord Sandwich was one of the vessels that was scuttled in Newport. So that sort of added credence to this idea that she might still be uh, somewhere Thames side rotting away. Uh, but this document that's come to light. I think it came to light in the 1990s, uh, indicated very clearly that her last resting place was going to be Newport. So it's been known for the last uh, 20-odd years, uh, going on 30, I suppose. Um, so it's it's sort of old news, but um, we are getting closer to knowing exactly which of the ships she is, and that's why she's been propelled back into the news again. Mm. Well, it's incredible how these things can turn up after so many, so many years. A bit of evidence, the ship from the Franklin Expedition. Oh, That's right. my That's right. word. 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Find out all about it on the Shipwreck Tales archive, which we still love so much, John. And we're actually going to be playing one later this evening, uh, the story of the Mikhail Lermontov, as we've been adding and adding and adding, gradually but surely and carefully, uh, to make the archive totally complete and next week with the Edmund Fitzgerald it shall be so hats off to you yet again and shipwreck tales are much appreciated John thank you Graham very much and we'll find out what happens with this endeavor of course hugely vastly um, iconic if iconic can be vast that's a ship that certainly is, as far as Australia and New Zealand goes. Um, thank you very much for all of that background. John McChrystal, good for you. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Here he is, Max Cryer. Hello, Max. Hello and good evening. How are you? Surviving. Did you miss me? Yes, we did. We did miss did you. Did you miss me? But I must... No, while I was away... Did you have a good time? Was it worth being away? It was fabulous. Oh, more fabulous than being here? Well, it was different. I went up Mount Cargill, which oh, was great fun. Oh, that does fun. help, yes. That yeah. does help, yeah. Uh, yeah. Lovely view. Went and saw a favourite band and just mucked around at home cleaning things. Oh, well, you must be glad to get back and doing something real. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, Max, uh, if you want to ask um, his Maxness a question, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and there's an email form there and ask away. I pass it on to Max and he gets his snoot into the books. But first up, October begins Monday, Max. Well, the word of the week is October because it's looming and it points out that even here in New Zealand we're obliged to observe decisions made in Rome over 2,000 years ago. Mm. The basis of what we now know as the year's calendar was recognised originally as having only 10 months, March to December, and October was the eighth month of that calendar, so it was named with the word octo, which is Latin for eight, uh, a word that crops up uh, quite often. An eight-piece instrumental group is an octet, a person aged 80 is an octogenarian, an octopus has eight limbs, an octagon is an eight-sided shape, and an octave is eight notes of a scale. However, over time, this eight-month structure of a calendar was gradually becoming ineffectual because as the years went by, the, the months of the calendar were no longer reliably lining up with the seasons expected of them. Seasons reliant on the timing of the world's turning rather than these invented calendar months. So the months of January and February were invented and added to the original 10 to make 12. This shoved the original names um, further forward, which is why October is still called October, even though it's the 10th month. Um, in Roman times, they estimated that their calendar was relevant to um, 30, 365 days, but it turned out on close observation that the world's actual turning was slightly more. And over a period of many years, they decided they were right because the Earth does not orbit the Sun in precisely 365 days, but just a little more. So, to keep the fitting with the seasons, people were accustomed to, on their usual dates, an extra day was added every four years. And that is called a leap year, and the next one will be 2020. 
Oh, OK, 2020. Because if you don't do it, after 100 years or so, mm. um, December will be in the middle of winter. They actually have leap seconds as well, just yes. to keep it, um, you know, strictly for the nerds, yeah. the nerds and the engineers. Well, I think we're grateful to the nerds and the engineers, because oh, yes. if we don't have those leap years, then the seasons and the months will eventually not not um, line up. And if we don't have the leap seconds after about a million years, we're just going to be having Christmas and in, in, the, in the middle of, sort of winter in, here. Yes, in the middle of August or yeah. something. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, what does hoi polloi actually mean? Do you know the phrase? Hoi I do know the phrase and I hear it being used in exactly the opposite way that I understand its meaning more often than I understand it's used in its shall, accepted meaning. Shall I tell you what it means and then you tell us what you thought it meant? Sure, sure. Right. Your show. Hoi polloi. Shall I go and get a pie? <laughs> Hoi polloi is Greek for the masses, the many, and it's taken to mean the general public. Um, the phrase has been commonly used in English for 500 years and it's never been transformed into an English-sounding phrase. It's still said in Greek, but it has developed a slightly snobbish connotation, snobbish, namely that the person saying it is somehow above the masses of which he or she speaks. So that while hoi polloi actually means the masses, its use in English somehow suggests the rabble. And a similar thing has happened to the Latin phrase, which means the same thing, mobile vulgus, which is Latin for the ordinary people. But in English, that's become the word mob, mm. which has a rather different connotation. Now, what did you think oi polloi meant? Oi polloi means the masses. Yes, yes it does the, mean... The, the it, great unwashed. Well, no, not... Ah, no, you, no, you've put your foot in a bit there. Because, oh, have I? Yes, because... If you say the masses, you mean everybody, which is what hoi polloi means. Oh, is that right? If you say the great unwashed, you're making a most unkind difference between those that wash and those that don't. And that is how tend to, people do tend to use that word, hoi polloi, meaning the downgraded ones, the ones that oh, don't... Oh, is that right? So the, the people, I've got it wrong twice, or at least, no, a half a time. Um, because I hear it used as meaning the upper tier. Oh, the hoi polloi, because it sounds like hoity-toity. Yes, but you just changed the vocal tone of your voice when you said it, and yeah. I think that's what causes that. Right, hoi polloi. But if you say, hoi polloi, you know, it sounds as if you're imitating somebody else, mm. Patrick. Because that's what I was, I hear, that's how I hear it used. Ah, but you see, you and I deal in this session, we deal only in facts. Oh. And I'm telling you what hoi polloi means in Greek, yeah. and that some people get it wrong. Yeah, and if enough people get it wrong for long enough, the meaning will change. It can happen, yes. It can. hasn't happened with that, but it can happen. It's such an awful thing. <laughs> it fills you with Something awe. Something so full of awe. Yes, it fills you with awe. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's terrific, isn't yeah. it? Three of the pikelets were successful, but the fourth pikelet was awful. <laughs> yes. It's hardly going to fill you with awe. The first pikelet was terrific, though, wasn't it? Oh, it was it wasn't. so terrifying. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll, no, we, I was going to say we'll s cease to be smart, Alex. But no, that's actually what the show's about. Here we go. Do cats have nine lives? A listener has asked. Uh, I think 
fairly obviously most people know that cats don't have nine lives, but there is a belief that they have them and there's a saying that they have them, so that's what we're talking about. Oh. It's a myth. It's not true. Cats don't have nine lives, but they're particularly good at surveying and surviving disasters with the one life they do have. Cats are small, they're lightweight, they're fast, they're flexible, they have excellent balance, and everyone has always known that cats can survive falls which other animals couldn't survive. And they can escape very quickly from risky situations. This has somehow engendered the unsubstantiated idea that cats had more chances at life than other creatures. But in time, an idea faded into view which influenced the perception of cats relating to something believed by the ancient Egyptians. Cats were revered in ancient Egypt. We're speaking 2,000 years ago at least. Ancient Egypt revered the cat, not only because they regarded it as having godlike qualities, but also because it was a practical beast and it killed rats. That cute. And the Egyptians noticed, of course, that the cat could survive falls and accidents. Thus, they reasoned that it had more lives than just one. Now, Egypt in that era was especially keen on numerology. And the number three had significance to them, as it still does to many cultures. And by extension, anything three by three was of great significance. So it was honouring the cat's agility and accident avoidance to declare that they possessed three times three lives, thus nine. And that's where the concept comes from. Now, that belief that cats had nine lives drifted out from Egypt. It's mentioned in Arabic and Indian fables of the 8th century, and eventually it reached the English language. Whenever anything like this crops up with a number in it, one has to recognise the background connotations of what many of which some numbers have. Remember, for instance, Seventh Heaven, Seven Veils, Seven Dwarfs. Seven Days of the Week. Or Tennis Doubles, String Quartets, Phases of the Moon. It goes on and on and on. So we get to nine. Now, even in modern times, the figure nine, three times three, has all sorts of things hovering about it. Nine holes of golf, a whip called cat and nine tails, nine nine pins for bowling, deep space nine, pregnancy, cloud nine, the nine major planets, the whole nine yards, dressed to the nines. It goes on. So it's not surprising that the concept of nine lives has a sort of ring to it. And it always did have, even way back several hundred years ago. So the belief... Is that because it rhymes too, nine lives? But it doesn't rhyme with cloud nine or the planets or... No, I wasn't saying that. I was saying lives rhymes with nine. It does. it, It makes it flow more easily. Now, the belief that cats had nine lives, which is basically Egyptian, got tangled up with the medieval European belief in witches. So the myth grew that witch women could change themselves into their pet cat a total of nine times. That one faded away. But the belief in nine lives remained, or at least the mention of it. It found its way into an English book in 1553. It's mentioned in Romeo and Juliet in 1596. And from then on, the myth of cats having nine lives is a concept that's remained in the English language and the English-speaking psyche, though I think that even when people say it, they know secretly that it's not actually true. I think so too, Max. Uh, cats bury their poos, don't they? they? At least they have a half-assed kind of go at it. They'll dig something in the dirt, squat over it, do a poo, and they'll make this effort to kind of bury it. Is there any other animal other than human beings 
on most occasions. But at least have a crack at this. Uh, you, you're speaking foreign territory to me because I'm not a cat person. Uh, I'm actually, unfortunately, allergic to cats. Oh, are you really? Oh, seriously, yes. What happens to you? Um, asthmatic attacks, difficulty of breathing, um, I have to have injections. Good heavens. It's not, Does not, it make are, you look askance there are other at people. cats? You dislike um, them because they're afflicting you with this? No, I mean, I appreciate the beauty of cats, and I can look at cats and, and sort of say, that one looks nice. They and smell good. It's a what? They smell good. Do they? Cat's belly. It's a lovely smell, oh. almost like a clarinet case. Oh, well, you see, I've been distanced from cats for right, right. the Would reason you, I mentioned. I'm, that's why I'm bringing it up, Max. These are things that you haven't been able to experience because of but the if asthma- you tempt me by asthmatic saying, attacks. But you, you're tempting me by saying that I should perhaps smell a cat's belly. No, no, just saying what you're missing. And I feel I feel for you, Max. It's oh, terrible. well, I think I'll give away the idea of kissing the belly because I rather like being with Sniffing. you. Sniffing. Uh, you just, I want to be with you next Saturday night, you see. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, um, is there another animal that buries its poos like that? I know it's not the greatest uh, piece of engineering, the cat self-made cat toilet with the paw, but they have a go. I think you read... Bless them. I think you need Richard Attenborough. I think I do. Um, Or David Attenborough, actually. Either. Mm, Either would be good. Richard Dawkins, he might know. We'll take a break. And when we return, uh, addressing more of your questions on the English language. Why do we say there's a fly in the ointment? And where did the name Joe Bloggs come from? among other questions. Weekend Variety Wireless. Max Cryer here answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. If you want to send just something in uh, the old-fashioned way, snail maily, uh, in an envelope, feel free. It gets to us eventually. What was the, the last one was sent in 2013, wasn't it, Max? And we just got it last week in the mail. <laughs> oh, that's not true. It, it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> Uh, so, the, it is P.O. Box 8880, Simons Street, Auckland. And we have a hurdle with the spelling. We'd better just say that it's S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. And we will get it eventually. All right. There's a fly in the ointment, as a saying, Max, somebody has asked, from whence? Well, the from whence is the good bit. Um, because what the listener said was, where does the expression fly in the ointment come from? The answer is very simple. It comes straight out of the Bible. Oh, does um, it? It means that a small defect spoils something valuable or is a source of annoyance. And the image comes straight from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, which says, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savour. Oh. And that, it means... A fly is in the ointment. Ecclesiastes. It's a real standout chapter in the Bible. It's a weird one. It's actually full of really quite good stuff. <laughs> well, there's a good bit of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that's over. There that's next. It. Nothing more. No, that's all there is to say. This I said, where does it come from? And I've told them where it comes from. Oh, okay. It's the shortest one we've had in a long time. Here we go. Where did the name Joe Bloggs come from? What a good question, because we've got it's, all it, sorts of names for, for the unknown uh, Yes, it, it's a difficult one, actually, because with those sort of vague, made-up names, it's sometimes quite hard to trace the history. Joe Bloggs is one of several, which I used to mean just the ordinary man in the street. 
in Britain, the term John Bull was often used back right back to 1712. And there are fanciful citizens, uh, variations like John Q. Citizen and John Q. Public. America has developed its own versions. It has Joe Blow and John Doe. And in New Zealand, you occasionally hear Fred Bloggs. Oh, you do too. Now, Joe Bloggs is fairly universal. It seems to have developed in Britain. There's no clear path towards its origin, but Eric Partridge, who is an etymologist in whom I have great faith, very reliable study, Eric Partridge believes that it originated in British private schools in the mid-19th century, and it's related to the word bloke. Now, in those days, bloke was a fairly contemptuous term for a common person. So it gave rise to blog, which meant a servant, a low fellow, someone from the village who couldn't afford to be at the expensive school. And although blog developed into Joe Bloggs, it didn't obliterate bloke, which also remained in the language. So you've got both. But bloke can be quite friendly. Mm. He's a good bloke. Yes, it's usually... Yeah, it usually has good. You're right. Usually, you can hear occasionally a bad bloke, I suppose. But anyway, yeah, it does. Exi- you can exist. But Joe Bloggs also exists. America has different names for the average man. The university students are called Joe College. Ordinary men are Joe Q. Public. And by 1900, a change had taken place in Britain, and both bloke and Joe Bloggs had become friendly terms. No hint of bad vibes about them, just they meant an ordinary average person. So the expression has come into extensive use with the growth of computers and emails where the name Joe Bloggs is often used in instructions and examples of how to do complex email transactions. Is that right? So I'm told. I managed to struggle through just with ordinary, you know, words on on plain background, but mm. apparently if you're doing something sophisticated and you search for instructions, it'll say, Joe Bloggs should do this or do that. Oh, okay. Someone will write and tell us. And also along uh, the digital format side of things, a blogger. Someone a blogger, who, Someone yeah. who blogs I think is that's not necessarily Joe Bloggs. It's just a, 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 a conjunction of two different uses yes, coming to and two the different same origins word. Because blogger is web log. Yeah, yeah. Yes. like a, a dolphin and a shark. They look vaguely similar. <laughs> they do. But they're not related. No, not at all. All right. Uh, why would one say, I don't care a fig? Why is it a fig they don't care about? The listener suggests it's because a fig is something of very little value. Well, no, it has a quite different origin, nothing actually to do with a real fig. The saying is based on an ancient Spanish gesture where someone could indicate contempt by sticking the thumb between the first and second fingers, clamping it and pointing the thumb at someone. Like this? Like that. And in Spanish, this was called a word which sounded like fico, which in Spanish means a fig. And in appearance, it had some resemblance to a sexual situation and was a way of showing contempt. Now, the gesture and its Spanish name spread to other countries, and including England, where it was called the fig of Spain. It was um, common use in Shakespeare's time. Othello says it. Othello says, virtue is a fig. Actually, at that time, although nobody, although they knew the expression, many Englishmen would not have known what an actual fig was, because the word applied was applied vaguely to dried fruit in general. The famous pudding, figgy pudding, 
contains no figs, but lots of currants and raisins, etc. So fig actually meant that sort of dried fruit. It's hard to imagine that in early centuries actual figs were abundant enough to be a symbol for worthlessness. But the Spanish expression was known, and so the word fig was regarded as part of it. Several hundred years, English-speaking people have used that ancient Spanish expression, I couldn't care a fig, indicating mild contempt, and they're signifying that they don't care. I'm surprised, Max, at all of that. Very surprised. Have you heard the expression? Yeah. It's not all that common, but it does happen, doesn't it? It does happen. Mm. And I've always assumed that someone would use it because it's just some sort of soft euphemism for couldn't give a fuck crying out loud. Yes. Well, that may well be true. Sort of balbarisation. But that developed by accident. Uh. Because when it was first said in English... Most English people didn't know what an actual fig was. It's not the right climate for figs in most of England. No. They used to import them from Rome, though. Oh, those were the days when the Romans were in. Oh, well, um, fascinating history. I didn't realise you knew. All right. Uh, Now let's get to Dutch courage. This is the same listener. The listener wondered why a nervous quick drink is sometimes described as Dutch courage. This is mildly complex. Um, there are two, two stories. The first derives from the disparaging idea amongst Englishmen that foreigners always need a few drinks before a fight to give themselves the illusion of courage. The second theory is rather more direct um, because it relates to gin, gin bolstering courage. Gin in its modern form was reputedly invented in the 1600s by a Dutch doctor and found favour with British troops in battle who appreciated the calming effects of this Dutch gin. Whether or not it specifically referred to gin, Dutch courage, as an English colloquialism, tended to use spirits, not just beer, to buck up pride and stiffen resolve. The popular version of this history dates the etymology of the term Dutch courage to the English soldiers, as I said, in the Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 1600s. One version states that Geneva, which is Dutch for gin, was used by English soldiers for its calming effect before battle and also because it helped slightly to warm them in cold weather, Um, which actually, I'm told, is an illusion because alcohol provides a temporary feeling of warmth, but it actually lowers the body temperature. Now, another version has it that English soldiers noticed the bravery-inducing effects of Geneva on Dutch soldiers, So it's never been quite clear whether the English said it because it gave them courage or that they saw the Dutch doing it and it gave them courage. But the link between gin, soldiers and courage is definitely one or either or both of those two stories. And the whole thing was boosted enormously in 1689 by the arrival in Britain of the Dutch King William, who became King of England as a descendant of Charles I, and apparently his drinking of the Dutch drink called gin, apart from the soldiers who'd been drinking it, influenced the then and later popularity, enormous popularity of gin in British socialising. And cheap gin gradually, under the the King's reign, became widely available in London and somewhat uh, with a bad reputation. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, those famous wood uh, engraving things, aren't they, of um, 
the, the gin the, palace. Yeah, and some uh, a, a woman oh, yes. breastfeeding, dropping her baby yes. down the stairs while drinking gin. Falling, falling because of the gin. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, because you're talking about Dutch, I just thought of something. I might um, push in in the queue for something that is a little confounding. Maybe some homework for you over the next couple of weeks, Max. Try me. Dutch courage. Now, we call the Dutch, Dutch, or Netherlanders, uh, in a place called Holland. But the Germans, they don't call themselves Germans. The French call them Alemane. Um We call them Germans, but the Germans call themselves Deutsch. And Deutsch and Dutch is so close. And why are all these completely unrelated words all referring to either the same thing or adding to this confusion. You'll never win on that. That's I don't want to win, I want to know the answer. <laughs> well, I'm afraid um, it might take up the whole of your evening session. That's a very, very complicated subject. We'll, we'll have a sort of brief... The Netherlands topic. are the Netherlands, but yes. most people here call it Holland. Well, they say Netherlands. We call Germany, Germany. They call Holland it Deutschland. Is only, Holland is only one province of that country. Yeah, okay. The country is not actually called Holland. Well, you've started already. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> no, no. I want to tell you what happened on the anniversary, what today's please anniversary. Please do, please do. We, we, we all knew, I think, in our time about Opo the Crazy Dolphin, but he was the second. There was another famous dolphin, even more famous, known as Pelorus Jack. And Pelorus Jack was hugely popular. Um, we don't know his gender. No, the dolphin was widely popular, but it was gender was never known. Now, Pelorus Jack was a Riso dolphin, and between 1888 and 1912, he frequently followed ships between Wellington and Nelson. On today's date, September the 29th, in 1904, Pelorus Jack became protected by law. It was announced that it was not lawful for anyone to take a fish or mammal of the species Riso's dolphin from the waters of Cook Strait or the bays, sounds and estuaries adjacent thereto. So, for the last eight years of his life, its life, because we don't know if it was him, for the last eight years of life, Pelorus Jack was performing under the government's protection. How lovely that we did that. There's a tiny piece of film, only one very bad piece of movie film, showing him leaping joyously into the water to salute uh, the ship. Bird of the Year. We'll be having a look at the history of the Bird of the Year. Uh, it's been surrounded in controversy. There's been fake news. There's been Russian meddling uh, in the election uh, when the Godwit won, because it does spend part of its time in Russian territory. Uh, we'll go through the bird of the year. Where you vote, uh, it's because the voting starts on Monday and it's only two weeks. Um, no bird has won twice. Could be the Grey Warbler's first chance. Are you voting? What bird would you vote for, Max? I'll have to survey the field. Good answer. I'm sure you'll tell me. Max Cryer. Onwards. Feel free to ask away. There's an email form clearly indicated on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Max, thank you very much.